Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And then when you get your Bibles open to Hebrews 11, you use both hands. Well, some of you may have to use both hands. I don't know. Uh, use, get uh, the Pillars of Truth, a copy of the Pillars of Truth. And turn to page 151, which begins with question 91 of the Orthodox Catechism. Hebrews chapter 11 and page 151. I've been purposefully trying to incorporate in the liturgy of our church service our confessional and catechetical standards because they reflect in our minds the reality that what we confess about what we believe is really anchored in biblical truth and not the writings of um, our imaginations, rather, the inventions of men. But they're biblical truths expressed for future generations to help guide us in all truth that was once and for all delivered unto the saints. All right. Well, let's draw our attention here to the book of Hebrews first, and then I'll come to the pillars of truth. I'm going to back up to chapter 10, verse 32. And I'll read to 11.4. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 11.4. The Word of the Lord says, Call to remembrance the former days, in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly while ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of them that were so used or afflicted. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just live by faith. But if any man draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draws back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were made of the things, I'm sorry, which the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. Look with me at question 91 of Orthodox Catechism. The question is this. 
Whereas we are delivered from all our sins and miseries without any merit of ours, by the mercy of God, only for Christ's sake, for what cause are we to do good works? Here's the answer. Because after that Christ hath redeemed us with His blood, He reneweth us also by His Spirit to the image of Himself, that we receiving so great benefits should show ourselves all our lifetime thankful to God and honor Him. Secondly, that every one of us be assured of His faith by His fruit. And lastly, that by our good conversation we may win others unto Christ. We see from the inspired apostle that's writing this letter in the book of Hebrews that it is important for them to maintain their confidence in what he says in verse 34, their confidence in a, a better and an enduring substance. For them to fail to do that would have huge consequences not only in their own lives, but also in the witness and the glory and the testimony of what God was now doing in this new covenant through His local body, the Church of Jesus Christ. So in their endurance, in their persevering in the faith, in them producing fruits, which endurance is part of our fruit bearing, they would have been witnessing to the world around them that this gospel is true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 55 through 57, after powerfully walking through the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection, the Apostle Paul, in connection with this uh, promise of this enduring and this better substance that you may receive in verse 36, he makes this glorious proclamation. Listen to what he says, verses 55 and 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise. That's the the enduring hope that He's setting before them. That you must endure by faith unto the end that you will receive this promise. Friends, for us as Christians, this is the ultimate promise of hope. That we will have victory over death and victory over sin. The hope and the promise that death and sin will not conquer us, but rather through Christ, we will have victory over these mortal foes. This is the ultimate reality contained in the good news of the gospel. If we consider the gospel as a, as a crown, this would be one of the, the crowning jewels that we have ultimate victory over death and the grave and over sin. This reality that one day we will be freed from the effects and the corruptions of sin which has wrecked and made havoc over everything that is beautiful, everything that we deem as lovely. Just to dial this in just a little bit more, this promise that you're given in the gospel, this crowning jewel of the promise that's supposed to help you and aid you, endure to the end. This which was part of the makeup and the composition of the faith of the men and women that are in chapter 11 that it helped them endure to the end. 
just to help you see a little bit of a glimpse of that, let me read to you from Revelation 21.4 because we get a snapshot, as if it were, of this intimate relationship between our Creator and our Redeemer God and us who finally receive this promise that's being mentioned in chapter 10 that's supposed to compel us and motivate us to endure to the end. Revelation 21.4 says, Then God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain because the former things are passed away. Friends, this is your treasure. This is your promised gift that is given to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes us oftentimes as strangers and pilgrims in this world, right? And this eternal promise, this eternal inheritance, this eternal treasure, it reminds us of an important truth that the Apostle Paul anchors our persevering and our enduring faith in when he says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, a love granted to us through faith, is our guarantee, it is our certainty that we will possess this treasure. That's why he wanted to start off in chapter 11 of understanding enduring faith has to be rested upon the faithfulness of God and not you. Remember that? Because it's the love of God through Christ which is going to help you always be anchored in His nature and His character that the promised inheritance of this beautiful reality where there is no more heartaches, there is no more suffering, oh, praise God, there, there is no more conflict, there is no more battles with sin, It's based on God's love for us through Christ that makes it certain. Paul says there he's persuaded that nothing will ever rob or take away the love of God from us, those of us who confess and believe upon Jesus Christ and His gospel message. However, beloved, this truth of our future treasure that's being described here, to look at and to never lose sight of, to compel us going forward, which is based on God's own nature, based on God's own character. It ought to give us all confidence and assurance. However, despite this revealed truth regarding God's unfailing love to His people, we are creatures of doubt. We are creatures of frailness. We are creatures, even though we have been born again, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, still because we have two natures, we are still shaken and we're still troubled. And the inspired writer of this letter to the early Hebrew Christians understood this reality about their composition and their makeup as Christians and our composition as well. And that's why in this letter, which is intended to clarify many things, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the superiority of Christ's covenant which he mediates to his church alone, Among those other things, the writer now is going to purposefully set aside time in chapter 11 to clarify saving, enduring, confidence-building faith. 
Because enduring faith is the type of faith that will keep you unto the very end. Enduring faith is the only type of faith that strengthens the weakened soul. Enduring faith is the only type of faith that will lift up the falling or the failing disciple. Enduring faith is the only type of faith that can carefully with precision correct the presumptuous disciple. And to help clarify what enduring faith is, the writer of Hebrew now begins to reach back and to use Old Testament saints who possessed and not only possessed but exhibited such enduring saving faith to try to build up a clarity of what this enduring faith looks like. And today in verse 4, he does so first by reaching all the way back to the beginning of human existence. And he draws upon the example of Abel. Now after Abel, we're going to go into a famous chapter of chapter 11, which many call the Hall of the Faithful. The Gallery of the Faithful. And I want to give just a few principles at the forefront before we start looking at each example for you to remember. So write these down because you need to have them in the backdrop of every time we're looking at one of these examples, okay? Children, especially I want you to remember example or guideline number one as we're looking to do all these faithful people. We don't enter into this long list of faithful patriarchs, faithful examples as quaint, pretty, polished people who are hanging on a picture frame when we look at them and we say, oh, that's just an eminent example of everything that is just good and ought to strive for. Friends, these people had great flaws. Um, One great failure of a lot of children's material that always kind of rubs me the wrong way is it, it presents the biblical characters as people that never had any flaws. David had major flaws. Abraham had some major flaws. Samson had some major flaws. And a lot of times, materials for kids, while it has to be appropriate, of course, we do have to emphasize that these people, even though they failed and they would fall, they still would endure and they still would keep going forward. So as we're looking at these examples, we have to always be sure that we're going to draw out in these examples that they were people that were not perfect, polished saints. But they had an enduring faith. What was it that compelled them to the end? So always remember that when we're looking at these examples. We must always keep in mind, secondly, that while they are set forward as examples, they're only made examples for us by the sovereign work of God. Knowing that principle helps us to remember that true salvation promotes humility, not pride. So even though they're listed there, Abel probably never would have asked to be listed in this hall of the faithful. Enoch, Abraham, David, Noah, none of these guys would have been asked to be listed. They understood, as you and I faithfully understand, it's only by God's grace I am what I am, as the Apostle Paul says, right? And so we see by God's sovereign work, he lives and he operates in the lives of his children to not puff them up but to work out and exercise His will in their life, and it demonstrates humility in their lives. 
Lastly, be careful when we're going through this lift of comparing yourselves to them. Many times, your, your flesh is going to whisper to you, oh, I just fell at that. I'm not as good as Abel. I'm not as good as Noah. I'm not good as Moses. And that all very well may true, be true. However, Moses, Noah, Abraham, David, etc., etc., may not be as good as you in other things. The idea of here is not to compare ourselves with one another. The idea is here to find out what is the substance at the very root of the faith that helped them to endure to the end. It's not fruit inspection of your fruit versus my fruit or your fruit versus Abel's fruit. It's about I want to make sure that I have, I'm cultivating that same enduring faith that they had. Because, Brother Tyler, at the end of the day, we got to take verses 35 through 37 at face value. Ye have need of patience that after you have done the will of God, enduring faith, you might receive the promise, the promise of that eternal inheritance. How then should we approach verse 4 today? I think we are approaching in three ways. First, Abel's enduring faith, we're going to see it was not a dead faith. Secondly, Abel's enduring faith is unavoidably connected to his worship. And thirdly, Abel's enduring faith left a legacy that still speaks. It wasn't dead. It was notably connected to worship. And it still speaks. So let us consider, first of all, Abel's faith in verse 4 was not dead. I think it would help us to revisit the dawn of human existence where Abel is first introduced in redemptive history. If you like, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis 4, chapter 2. This is where Abel is first introduced in redemptive history. The Bible says there, and again, she, Eve, his mother, bore his brother, his brother was Cain, bore his brother Abel. Now Abel, it says, was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Here we see from Genesis 4-2 that Abel was the second son of Adam and Eve. And the meaning of his name is uncertain among scholars. Some believe that his name could have meant breath, some vanity. Many believe it was the word, an ancient word for shepherd. And while there's not a lot we can gather about Abel in the book of Genesis, the Spirit of God we know is very particular in recording for us the narrative of how he pleased God through his worship and subsequently how he became the first person in human history to be murdered, and not only murdered, but murdered by, by his brother, which is the first case of familicide, being murdered by one of your own family members. What we can gather about Abel is that in many ways, his life was simple. His life was a rigorous life of raising and tending sheep. If any of you have raised animals of any kind, you know it takes a lot of work. So we can at least gather this from uh, Abel's life, even though we don't have a lot of information about him. He's not noted in Scripture as possessing great wisdom. He's not noted in Scripture as possessing great looks, great charm notable strength. And I believe by this lack of information, we could be safe to conclude that Abel's just a common person. He's just a common guy who had a rather common vocation, raising sheep. And what we see in the Bible is that his demonstration of the faith was really just a common outworking of faith. He's taking 
offerings to God. I mean, there's nothing grand and spectacular there. You're common folks here. You're here today. Most of you have a common vocation. You're here today in a common expression of your faith. You're gathering on the Lord's Day. However, for our current purposes, the inspired writer is careful to recall to our minds that the enduring faith which Abel exhibited, it was not a dead faith. It wasn't a dead faith, but it was one that was connected to good works or we could say evangelical actions. Now what I mean by this term evangelical actions or good works is simply describing a person who is motivated and who is fueled by an inner faith and an appreciation toward God as creator and redeemer, which in turn compels that person to greater acts of love, sacrifice, and selflessness. First to God, and then to other people. Look at the text. It says, by faith, Abel offered. That's the evangelical action. He's doing something. His faith isn't dead. By his enduring faith, Abel is compelled. He is doing something. And by this, we ought to consider the fruit, or that is the reality, that enduring faith will be accompanied with fruits. It will be accompanied with evangelical actions. I'm using evangelical actions purposefully because, as we've noted before, enduring faith isn't a faith that needs to be manipulated. It isn't a faith that needs to make you feel guilty for not doing certain things. Enduring faith is accompanied by evangelical obedience, as we read in the Orthodox Catechism, question 91, that recognizes that God is good, and He is doing good, and that He has done good in my life, and I want to serve Him. That's what evangelical action is. This is what enduring faith does. It was what enabled and compelled Abel to offer Enduring faith, the type that is under consideration, is that which always will produce some sort of fruit in the life of the individual who possesses it. In this case, it's Abel. Appreciating, I think, the dual nature of the person who possesses saving faith, meaning they have a dual nature. They have, yes, the Holy Spirit of God, but yes, they have the old remnants and corruptions of the flesh. This would have been accurate of Abel to say. All these these men and women in chapter 11 appreciating that, fruit at times may be very difficult to detect. We do acknowledge that. Another factor hindering us from seeing the fruit or evangelical actions of faith is our own inability to properly discern fruit that isn't what we expect it to be. You may, have a lot of, you may be bearing a lot of fruit, but see, if I have certain expectations of what the fruit looks like, I may be looking at you and not seeing your fruit. Right? In fact, there are times where precious, spirit-wrought fruit, which is the evidence of enduring faith, can be overlooked and missed by others while it really was there the whole time. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that evangelical actions are never seen, never heard, or never known. No, because then that would make Jesus' words seem absurd when he says, you will know them by their fruits. I'm just simply saying, in the church of God, in the context of Romans 15, focusing on unity, focusing that in our lives, be careful not to have certain expectations of what someone's fruit ought to be looking like because they may have a lot more fruit than what you know. And oftentimes that's the case. 
Oftentimes that's the case. Enduring faith is the type of faith which is going to equip a person like Abel to persevere unto the end and will never be alone here, as we're seeing. In some way or another, it will be accompanied with fruit. This biblical truth of enduring faith accompanied with fruit, it's echoed all throughout the Scriptures and the individuals that will be listed throughout chapter 11. What can be said of Abel can be said of others who we're going to consider. By faith, they weren't perfect. By faith, they were not always right. By faith, they were not always courageous. By faith, they weren't always noble. But what we can't, what can be said of every single example in chapter 11 is that by enduring faith, which believed in God's promise that He would fulfill it, particularly as it related to the promised Messiah seed, that type of enduring faith was accompanied by fruit in their lives. That's why I was saying earlier in my introduction, we look at this hall of faith and it's not necessarily this glitzy, polished hallway. Okay? It's not. But what we do see is that it possessed the essence of that which matters the most that God will do what He said. And that's why when they lacked courage, when they lacked nobility, when they lacked good decision making, they still could get up. And they could be renewed each morning with fresh blessings of mercy because they understood in their epistemology it rested upon the superior covenant blood of Jesus Christ. Mercies were new every morning part of the essence of enduring faith which they exhibited in their lives. That was the fruit that was compelling forward and forward in exhibiting that they had enduring faith. They didn't give up, Eddie. They kept going on. This truth of enduring faith accompanied with fruit is sprinkled all throughout the New Testament. Time doesn't allow for us to explore each and every Example of it, but if you like, you can turn your Bibles to James 2, verse 17, where he explicitly says, Faith, if it has not works, if it has not fruits, it is dead being alone. Now, many people have mistakenly taken this to teach that somehow or another, that our fruits or our good deeds are somehow part of how we're justified, how we're made right with God. The reality is that the Bible teaches that fruit and what we're going to see in chapter 11 and what we're seeing in Abel's uh, Abel's life, it is a light for us to see things, um, that fruit, his works, was an evidence of his justification. This is what the Bible teaches. Paul teaches, for example, in Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, without good works, without evangelical actions. And Paul's correct. Beloved, Paul and James were not in competition somehow, disagreeing with one another about how a person is justified. They weren't getting faith confused in any way. But it's important for us to remember that they were both teaching the same truth, that faith alone is how one is justified and that their faith will always be accompanied with some sort of fruit. 
the key to understanding this apparent contradiction between James and Paul is to remember the audiences that they are writing to, the historical context. James was writing to a group of people who thought, hey, I'm a member of the New Covenant, so it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to do anything. I can just sit back on cruise control. James was having to correct that, you see. He had to keep them in balance. Paul was writing to a group of people who were emphasizing and getting the doctrine of justification by faith alone incorrect. And he had to tell them, no, 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 you're not justified. You're not made right with God uh, by your works at all. It is all of faith. They were not contradicting each other. They were teaching the same truth. That faith and saving faith, strengthening faith, enduring faith, it will be manifested or accompanied with actions. And if it's not, James is saying you have a wrong understanding of the type of faith that is necessary to make it unto the end. You may be fine now, but when it gets really hard, when it gets really difficult, there's a high probability that you're going to give up. That you're going to start second questioning the faithfulness of God and His promises. There is a very real warning that I can say, as he has done in Hebrews, that you're going to apostatize. So look in the mirror, he's saying. Is your faith accompanied with fruit? Is it accompanied with actions? Because it was read in question 91 of our Orthodox Catechism, that is part of how you feel reassured that you are one of God's. You believe and your feet move. Your lips say and your heart is compelled. It's, that's how God has done it. It's meant your evangelical works, able offering, him doing that, was intended by God to reassure him and give a witness to everyone around him that God is real. The faith that he gives is substantial and powerful. And that is what's being focused upon in this verse. That Abel's faith was not dead, but it was accompanied by actions. His Offering. His offering particularly is connected, of course, with worship, which brings us to our second heading here, what we can gather from Abel and his life. Abel's enduring faith was notably connected to his worship. Now, as already mentioned, Abel was a shepherd and is known for bringing God a pleasing sacrifice. This is recorded in Genesis 4. It's recorded there that he brought the firstborn of his flock. Cain, Abel's older brother, many of you already know this, he was a worker of the ground and he did not bring God, the text says, a pleasing sacrifice. I'm going to read the text. This is Genesis 4, 3-5 through that gives us this narrative of Abel's enduring faith connected with worship. In the process of time, the Bible says, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Some wonder how Cain and Abel were supposed to know in the first place that they were to bring worship to God. And the answer is, is that God must have instructed them concerning the details of how he was going to be worshipped. It's just not recorded in the book of Genesis. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Why would people just start doing these kind of acts? No. God sacrificed the animal 
to cover uh, Adam and Eve. And there was much instruction that we have to safely presume that was occurring between God and Adam and Eve and then in Cain and Abel that was passed down to them that just not isn't recorded for us in the book of Genesis. We can't speculate about what the details were, but it's safe to say, looking at this, that they would have been knowledgeable about how to worship God because they were doing this strange act. I think all of that reinforces what we were talking about last week in regards to the regulative principle of worship. That they were worshiping on a particular day, they were worshiping and bringing particular items. Why? Because they just invented an abbey of their own imaginations? No, because they had been instructed by God. God who regulates His worship, how, what day, so forth and so on. We see it at the very beginning of time it was occurring. Being a shepherd, we're told in verse, chapter 4, verse 4 of Genesis, that Abel brought the best portion of his firstborn lambs. Regarding Cain, the text just simply says... He brought of the fruit of the ground. The most evident difference between these two sacrifices we have to acknowledge is that one contained blood and one did not. Based upon this, that Abel brings one with blood, one of the firstlings, a good choice firstling, Cain just brings fruit of the ground, could have been fruits, vegetables, what have you, we're not told. Based on this, many, many notable and credible theologians. They seek to convince us, at least this is what I saw in my studies, that it was the blood sacrifice that made Abel's sacrifice more pleasing to God. But brothers, I'm careful to disagree with them. And here's why. First, Scripture does not give an indication that this is the difference that factored into God's acceptance of Abel's acceptance and Cain's rejection. It just simply says, God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain. doesn't say why. doesn't say anything about one who had blood and one did it. And here's what convinced me in consideration of this. Later on in redemptive history, God instructs, and in fact He institutes in the Levitical sacrificial system, the second temple sacrifice is the meal offering, which is a bloodless sacrifice. So if he's so peculiar in the sacrifice that Cain and Abel's bringing that it has to maintain blood in order to echo the sacrifice that has to be required for the forgiveness of sin, as many theologians convince us, then why later on does he accept a meal offering? What we do know for sure, though, in Genesis 4, is that the Lord did look with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain's, he did not look with favor. So then, the challenge is, and I believe it's, this is what the author here is using Abel for, is answering the question, what was it that made Abel's sacrifice more acceptable? And I believe there's several things that teach us the answer. First of all, it's important for us to observe that it was an exceptional sacrifice, not just ordinary. So it's okay to say that. It had blood, yes, that's not necessarily what made it exceptional. What made it except, exceptional, Genesis 4, 3 and 4 tells us, is that it was the firstling of the lambs. So the quality of the sacrifice is notable. We, we have to recognize that. Is that what made it more acceptable? Well, we can't say yes or no, but we can just say that had something possibly to do with it. While Abel's sacrifice was, yes, indeed, exceptional, 
I think we're missing the mark, are we not? If we say it was because of his exceptionalism of the sacrifice that made it more accepted. Because then this destroys the idea of whatever you can bring based upon where you're at in your life. Monetary, time, energy, gifts, so forth and so on. Whatever you can bring compared to what so-and-so is bringing. You see, now if one's more exceptional than yours, then God's going to accept one over the other. So I think the quality, the exceptionalism of Abel's offering isn't why God preferred it. I don't think he necessarily preferred it over Cain's because of blood or because of its quality. It was something else. It was something else. Walk through this thought with me this way. Consider it this way. Here's Cain and Abel leading up to the appointed day that God instructed he wanted to be worshipped. Right? And they're gathering the things that were allowed to be brought to him for worship. Cain was made by God a tiller of the ground. Abel, by God, a shepherd over sheep. And so they walk out to their respective places of dominion and they're going to prepare for worship. They know it's coming up in a couple of days. And here's what I believe is really behind what made one acceptable another, and I'm going to try to demonstrate that for you. Abel came out and he looks over at his flock and he says, wow, I have so many sheep I could pick from to take to worship this coming Lord's Day, this coming Sabbath. What should I take? Well, understanding, many believe he was in his, him and Cain were in their 120s to 130s. Understanding that for the last century and a couple decades, I have been told that we deserved to be wiped away. God had given my parents everything. And they sinned against God. They transgressed against God. And part of that uh, consequence is they were cast out of Eden where we had everything provided for us. But God's not going to leave us in that state. He made a promise to crush the head of that serpent and to give us victory over death and to give us victory over sin. For a hundred years I've heard that and I know it's true. I believe it's true. And such a God deserves the very best sheep out here. And that one right there which would be a good line to reproduce, I'm taking that one. I'm going to take that best one because He is worthy of that. He has given me in this promised Messiah what my heart knows I need the most, and that is freedom from the bondage of this sin. Cain goes out to his field, and he has a big abundance of crops. Cain says, as I'm going to seek to try to demonstrate to himself, Boy, this is a big, bountiful, you know, crop this year. I wonder what I can. T- I got. I know I got to take something to worship. You know, I, I got to go through the motions. I got to be there. If not, I'm gonna have mom and dad on my back, Adam and Eve on my back. I'm going to have them on my back. So, what am I going to take? Cain takes something that's not exceptional. He takes something that's ordinary. The text says something from just the ground. In other words, Cain's attitude, we can gather from the text, is just, I'll take any old ordinary pumpkin. 
I mean, we could, we could gather that. There's clearly a difference. Because our text today in verse 4 says, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. But what made the difference? Well, I hope you see by now the key to this answer is to understanding the posture of their hearts. The posture of their hearts, the posture of their attitudes in their worship was the key. It wasn't the type of sacrifice. It wasn't the quality of sacrifice. It was what was going on in their hearts. So while Adam and Eve were looking at their two sons, and they're both going through the motions, they're both getting ready for the Lord's day, and they're both traveling wherever this place was that they're going to offer the sacrifices, we're not told. There's much about the early parts of this first family that we don't know. But they're taking it, and on the outside, it looks as though Cain is what? Obeying God. That Cain is worshiping God. But friends, don't be neglectful to remember the truth of God's all-penetrating eye. As it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, there was something in Cain's motivation. There was something in his heart attitude that made his offering unacceptable to God. I believe that we can be certain of this because of Jude 11. Jude 11 mentions Cain. And listen how Jude 11 mentions Cain. Referring as a description to those who were lawless men, rebels against God, Jude says, they, those men, they have taken the way of Cain. This most likely means that Jude was referring to those who, like Cain, disobediently, in their hearts, devised how they were going to worship God. I don't need to take anything exceptional. I mean, after all, I haven't seen him in 120, 130 years. Yeah, my mom and dad have been telling me the story of what happened, um, but, you know... So far, there hasn't been any Messiah. I mean, we thought Abel was going to be that. When he came along, my little brother, we thought he was going to be that Messiah. This thing's not happening. You see? He started devising in his own way how he was going to worship God. To him, there was, there was nothing special about this worship. He was going to do it. He was going to go through the motions. But his heart was reflective of a worship to God that God did not prescribe and that God would not accept. Cain's offering, while acceptable in his own eyes, in his own thinking, while perhaps acceptable in his parents' eyes, it was not acceptable to the Lord. Sure, it had the outer forms of conformity, but it lacked the inward sincerity of believing the Creator God who promised the Messiah. And so he showed up, he brought an offering, but there was no real faith. It was dead religion and ritual for Cain. We know that in some way, through this, Cain perverted God's prescribed form of worship, which requires a wholehearted trust, and he is who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he will do. Now, brothers and sisters, when we come into this place of worship, there is 101,000 things that are telling you when you walk through the church door 
God has not kept His promises this week. God is not going to do this. God is not going to do that. You have 101 different things screaming at you that this thing is not real. When you come into His worship, He wants you to check all of that at the door. And when you sing, Come Thy Fount, you really believe it. Because that's what this is. At the end of the day, we come here every Lord's Day, not because of dead rituals, No, we come here to remind ourselves of these blessed realities and these blessed truths, which in the hymn we just sung, we are very prone to wonder from. That's why we are here. To give Him praise, adoration, and glory. Because why? We have, we possess, lest we be deceived, lest you're here today because someone drug you here, lest you're here today because you're trying to appease your husband or your wife, your brother or your sister, your mom and dad, etc. Unless you're here for that reason, you're here today because you really are singing and you believe that God will be faithful in His promises. You're looking for, you're keeping in front of you the perception and the reality that there will be victory over the grave. There will be victory over sin. There will be victory over all of the things that plague you now. God gave Cain every opportunity to repent of his dead, lifeless worship in verses chapter Genesis 4, verses 4 through 8. But he became angry. And later on, we know the story. In the field, he killed Abel and brought judgment upon himself. The exact opposite is true of Abel. Oh, friends, let us look at Abel. He's the object of our verse. Abel brought what? An exceptional sacrifice to God. The Apostle John tells us in 4.24 that God is a spirit and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Friends, Abel's exceptional sacrifice was a reflection of a heart that gained exceptional mercy. His exceptional sacrifice was a reflection of an exceptional grace that was granted to him by a sovereign God. And because of that, he worshipped God in spirit and in truth. And he brought forth the acceptable offering and worship. Abel's spiritual awareness of the mercy and the love of God through his promised Messiah that he told his, to his parents that was communicated to him is the very thing which motivated him to offer to God a sacrifice that reflected a debt of gratitude and thankfulness which overflowed from a changed heart. Unlike Cain, who was simply doing it because he had to do it. Abel was told the blessed old story of the gospel as it was revealed up until that time in Genesis 3.15 and he believed that gospel. That's why he's in the hall of faith. He believed that God was faithful and true. Abel believed the power of God that this promise would be fulfilled someday. And so for 120, 130 years up to this point before his murder, he was doing this in worship of God, believing God. None of us are going to live 120 years. And I think this is something important at this point, just a bookmark in these examples, especially of the early people in redemptive history, they live longer. And especially when we get to Enoch, how, how for centuries, century and a half, 
They weren't seeing this being fulfilled, but they still believed. They still endured until the end. Observe, friends, with me, the witness of Abel's worship, causing us to consider our own witness of our own worship. I think in verse 4, we cannot escape the connection between Abel's enduring faith and the witness of his worship. The text says, by which this, this enduring faith that exhibited offerings, uh, but this worship, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, his offering. Remember, it wasn't the exception of his offering. It was the motivation of his offering. We've established the fact that it was real, lively, enduring faith which God saw and which motivated Abel to bring these exceptional sacrifices that he did. And we must also observe here that his worship was a witness in proportion of this faith that he had. His witness was in proportion to the enduring faith that he had. In other words, Abel's worship, your worship, whether it's praise, whether it's sacrifice, whether it's your tithes, whether it's your time, whether it's your energy, can rightly be considered a reflection of the part or proportion of the enduring faith as a whole. Abel's bringing forth this exceptional sacrifice as a reflection, a small proportion of what he possessed in the inward man. It was a witness, as if it were, of what he had. Cain saw it. Cain knew. He knew in the deepest recesses of his heart through jealousy that he did not bring the best, but he could see the witness of Abel. And the witness of Abel's worship, Cain could see, was a reflection to the proportion of the faith that Abel possessed. And it made Cain not pricked in the heart. Why don't I love God that way? After all, what my mother and father told me about here, the gospel and the promise, etc., etc., why don't I feel that way? Instead, what did he do? He was bitter. And he was angry. So, our worship... And when I say worship, that's why I included praise, sacrifice, tithes, times. It's a reflection. That's your worship. Every, every, all that stuff, all that service is worship. In this context, it's able bringing a specific firstly land to God. Your worship is a reflection in proportion of how much you really believe. This whole story, this whole gospel narrative. And that, my friends, is to cause an x-ray from the Bible to our worship. Does my worship that I offer to God, does it reflect what I believe about Him and His Messiah? Or does it reflect the proportion of my faith as Cain reflected it? That I'm going to give him just the minimum, the ordinary, whatever's convenient, whatever's, uh, you know, expedient? Or am I going to give him the best? It's actually going to cost me something, Tyler. Because it costed him everything. I understand that. I believe that. Let's look at Luke 21. Perfect example of this principle of what I'm trying to say 
that the worship reflects a proportion of our faith. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. You guys know this. This is the parable of the widow's might. The Lord Jesus brought down these simple, these really wonderful, blessed truths and these simple parables to teach us. Beginning with verse 1. And he, Jesus, of course, looked up and he saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. Right? You guys know the context here. They were rich men. They had gifts to cast. They had money to give. And he also saw a certain poor widow casting a thither two mites. So she's casting in two mites. And at that time, a poor widow, that was a lot of money. And he said of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow has cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she of her penury hath cast in all the living she had. Brothers and sisters, although the widow's might was monetarily insignificant in the eyes of what matters to fellow religious people, it was significantly proportionate to that which God values the most, and that is belief and faith. Why would she have taken almost all that she has and give it in worship to God? Because she truly believed He was worthy. And she did not care if it would make her feel inconvenienced, if it would make her feel stressed, if it would make her feel tired, if it would reflect and later on have consequences upon her that would make her feel uncomfortable. No, because He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy. Abel possessed the same enduring faith when he brought the firstlings. Abel, you can imagine Cain saying, Dear brother, you don't have to bring the best one. You need to keep that one because if you keep that one, next season it will produce this and this and this. And what you can imagine what Abel would say, Get behind me, you Satan. Get behind me, you snake. God is worthy. I'm going to do it. I don't care of the consequences and the sacrifice that will be required of me. And so friends, what does our worship reflect? What proportion of our faith does our worship reflect? Is it in proportion to your faith and thankfulness to God for His Son, Jesus Christ, in the abundance of His Gospel and His Kingdom and what He is doing? Does it reflect that, friends? Or is it representative? I think this is an appropriate question to ask. In proportion to that which costs us very little, which costs us only what we are comfortable with sacrificing. Friends, what we're seeing here in verse 4 is that this enduring faith is accompanied with fruits that will eventually reflect that which leaves behind a legacy that that brother or sister really believed in the gospel kingdom building story of Jesus Christ. Their lives scream of it. The way they educated their children. The way they spent their time. The way that they worked through difficulties and dark seasons in their lives. They were about the business of the gospel. 
This was the legacy we see here in Abel's life. Abel's enduring faith left this witness. It left this legacy that he believed the gospel, that he witnessed it with the type of worship he gave to God from his heart despite the cost. And the text says, by it, the witness of his righteousness as exhibited in his worship, fueled by saving enduring faith, he being dead yet still speaks. I think it's interesting that Jesus draws focus on Abel in Matthew 23, verse 35. He does so because he wanted to, he, in, that, in that sense he was using Abel as being the first martyr. That's what he was doing. And Abel's blood is later on mentioned in Hebrews, we'll see it, in 12.24, where it's compared to the sprinkled blood of Jesus, who Jesus, in that context, what the writer's doing, we'll see that later on, Jesus was another innocent, righteous man, okay? And they both were martyred. Hebrews 12.24 teaches this there, though, that, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of Abel. But how is that so? How is that so? How is Abel speaking and Jesus' blood being speaks as a better uh, witness? While Abel's blood cried out for vengeance against his murder, his murderer, that is his brother Cain, Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness of murderers. This is what Luke 23, 24 says. God, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Cain's blood at the beginning of time is screening out for justice and for vengeance. And God answers that at the cross with the blood of Jesus Christ. At the cross, you guys have heard this said many times, God's perfect justice and God's perfect mercy and grace are both held in perfect balance. He pays a debt for real sins, for real sinners who otherwise would be condemned under the judgment and the condemnation and wrath of Almighty God. But at the same time, he opens up the fountain of mercy, the fountain of grace, the fountain of pardon. And this is why in Hebrews 24, it could say that Jesus' blood speaks of uh, a better witness because it's the bookend that says what what Cain's blood was crying out for, Jesus has met and Jesus has answered. As one theologian commented, the blood of Abel cried for vengeance, the blood of Jesus for remission. Understanding the superior significance and the witness of Christ's blood over that of Abel's, we're taught here that Abel still yet in a powerful way has left a legacy which still speaks to us today. Is Abel's legacy here that's still speaking to us? That Abel never had days where he committed sin. No, that's not his legacy. Is Abel's legacy here, Abel never failed in any way God and how God wanted to be served and worshipped. That's not Abel's legacy. What is Abel's legacy that still speaks to us today? That after 120 120 to 130 years of hearing the gospel narrative, he believed to the very end until his brother took his life. And we have all reason to believe because of this enduring faith, that if he would have lived like Methuselah another 700 or so years, he still would have been bringing his very best in the worship of God. That's how Abel speaks to us today. 
And at the very root of it all is an operation of God in his heart that stirs, that compels, that fosters and, 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 and motivates an individual to continue pressing on. That's his legacy, friends. That's his legacy. In conclusion, let us just remember what we read in question 91 of the Orthodox Catechism. It's out of a thankful and an abundance of joy for what God has done for us as it was in the case of Abel that we bring forth fruit unto Him. It is because of who He is and what He has done that we sing praises to His name. And that is what will give enduring faith the nutrients that it needs. Serving God in fear Serving God to get what I want, that will suck the life out of enduring faith. Giving praise to God and serving Him out of an abundance of who He is and what He has done, that's the nutrients that strengthen enduring faith. So then, how is our worship reflecting that in our lives? Let's give Him everything, friends. He is worthy of it all. Allow the Holy Spirit through His text to do what He did to me and examine me and me and Nolan. We're talking about it this morning of some things that ought to be priorities for us. And we become, of course we become this. We have dual natures. I get lazy. I, 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 you know, I get melancholy. And we were saying, I was like, son, that, man, that, you know, what, what we told this brother, that brother, we, why are we letting that slack off? We need, to, we need to do that. We told him we would do that. We need to be men of our word. This is gospel work. We need to get back on the business of serving Christ. We need to, we're, we're, we're told to be salt and light. Proclaim the good news. Tell others about the gospel. Right? How is that being done? You, you, you see the connection, the application here. Friends, this is a good example for us to look at the legacy of Abel and remember what compelled him ought to be at work in our hearts as well to go out this week and to manifest the proportion of the faith that we're here this morning saying we believe. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we bow before you and we give you praise, we give you honor, we give you worship because you are so worthy. We confess, O God, that we believe in Your Gospel. Lord, we confess that we still, Lord, believe the good news that because of the righteousness in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and Your love for Your Son and all of those who You have given Your Son, that we will inherit someday, Lord, an eternal reality by which, O Father, You Yourself, in a way we can fully comprehend, will wipe away all tears, all sorrow, all sickness, all pain. God, we thank You for this promise. God, help us to see it this week. Lord, as we go back into the the land of Egypt, we go back into our workplaces, back into the, the, the circumstances, the various circumstances of our families, whatever they may be. Help us to keep that perspective, O God. And may our worship of You, Lord, of what we we believe in our hearts and what we confess with our lips, may it reflect, O Father, I pray, in proportion of what we say we believe. 
Forgive us of our sins, God. Forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Deliver us from the bondage of sin. God, through Jesus Christ and His atoning work, Lord, lead us to victory. Lead us, O God, we pray, to a more holy life, to live unto Thee, Lord, as if, Lord, all of the things we learn today and and what we've been talking about, the book of Hebrews, O God, that they are real. This is our worldview. This is our reality as Your pilgrims and as Your strangers in this land. Help us to recapture, Lord, this. If we have fathered... Uh, fallen into a state of melancholy or, or just a backslidden state that, oh God, You would do this work in our hearts. You must do it. We confess that we cannot do it. Father, we're at Your mercy. And we're asking You to send Thy Spirit in power. We're asking You, oh God, that as Your Spirit is amongst us, Lord, ministering to us through Your Word, that, Father, it would prune, it would take away, it would, it would Lord, shape and mold us into that perfect and beautiful image of Thy Son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to follow His footsteps. Giving You glory first, Lord, and being selfless and sacrificial to those around us. We bless You. We thank You, O Father. You are so worthy of all of our adoration and our worship. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.